So, this is the self-development with tactics. Book. I don't know why, but today I'm amazingly tired and feeling like just done, quite. And the good thing is today is my rest day, so I'm not gonna work hard today. Um, but I think I'm gonna go outside today. Of course, um, it is nice weather. I just wanna get a little bit of sun. Maybe we're gonna just uh, tan a bit if I can do so. Um, besides all the other things that I should be doing, should be doing. And and yeah. By the way, I remember something. I gotta be doing but it is actually very difficult for me today you know it's actually the case that that i don't even want to fucking walk i don't even want to fucking walk and i would actually like to stand here and talk about things instead of sitting and i gotta have to deal with my carpet this is something that i'm gonna do today i'm gonna deal with my fucking carpet because it is actually not that good as it is in this way because um it's often bothering me i would actually not just I don't actually want to have it there, but I kind of need to. Well, anyway, um, today we're going to go ahead with anger management. And I do want to go ahead with it in terms of, um, first of all, talking about stepping back and and maybe also how to just take a step back, even though it is actually quite simple. And I think we often kind of, you know, we often just making it more complicated than it has to be or than it also should be. And afterwards, we're going to talk about habits because I found a, a pretty great article by James Clear. Um, but I'm going to talk about it later on. So yeah, um, self-care and decision-making, knowing when to take a step back. One of the many acronyms in the 12-step vernacular is HALT, H-A-L-T, which stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. It is used as a cautionary reminder that when one is in any of these modes, they are more likely to relapse or revert to dysfunctional behaviors. Whether you are in active substance abuse mode or totally sober, or even if addiction is not part of your life, this is helpful guidance. I visit a 12-step page and read a conversation on the subject. Someone who adhered to a strict program that told them that they were quote-unquote powerless over their addiction flinched at this direction since it implied that they had some control outside the guidance in the big book. I pondered this having been a therapist educated in the addiction field for several decades and someone who faces the addictions of workaholism and codependence. While the steps and traditions are valid and lifesavers for so many, I have come to believe that we are uh, responsible for our choices. I spent six years going to CODA meetings where I came face to face with my limits and possibilities. I learned what set the wheels in motion uh, that had me practicing savior behavior, thinking I needed to heal, save, cure, and kiss the boo-boos to make them all better. It was what I learned in my childhood home and carried it through into my personal and professional interactions. Usually, it was about earning my place and providing my worthiness. Part of my growing edge is dealing with challenges thrown my way in relationships, since my MO is about no wanting to rock the boat or to be an emotional con contortionist who bends or backward to release or to, to please not release people yesterday i had an unpleasant interaction that tested my resolve with someone i know well who reacted to something they had heard or read on my facebook page while well-intentioned they misread what someone else had written took it personally and was off to the race as in my rule i don't add dirty laundry 
I don't add dirty laundry online and call them to discuss it calmly. No matter how factual I attempted to be and keeping my tone measured and calm, they went from 0 to 60 without taking a breath. The result was that they hung up, still blaming me for uh, perpetuation, the conflict and causing their feelings about the experience. Later, the conversation continued via messenger, and even though I copied and pasted the thread that began the process and requested that they reread what was written, the result was the same. This person couldn't see past their own filters and intensified it by using an emotionally charged statement that could be perceived as dramatic. I sighed and uh, took a step back in my mind rather than becoming defensive. I did a check in my in with myself and recognized that I was neither hungry nor lonely. But could feel the anger brewing up, uh, brewing, and after a long week, I was tired. I had to control the urge to react, knowing that it would not likely lick the response that I wanted, which was that they could acknowledge that they indeed had overreacted. I wasn't looking for an apology, but rather a redirection of the trajectory they were on, since it was getting them nowhere good. I can't speak for their whole quotient, or quotient, but my guess was that they were somewhere on that spectrum coming across as angry. I queried my friends who are either in recovery who are either in recovery or are professionals in the field about this phenomenon and their feedback offered a window into the world. This is a quote. I always like acronyms. In my experience, especially working in the jail, people felt triggered by the by death of a loved one and full relapse occurred. They would point to a major loss or trauma. Hold seems to trigger slips, ups or lapses. So having a relapse prevention plan for when a lapse occurred was often useful. We made volatized cars to use after a lapse, three people to call three detours, three affirmations, three hell memories, and a few others. Hold is useful to prevent slip-ups. To take care of hunger, to appease or release or self-forgive anger, to learn to fill one's own heart when loneliness strikes, to allow oneself rest, sleep, rejuvenation when one is uh, tired, these are all skills that can be so helpful in life and in recovery. The four challenges in hold seem to be potential last straws, quote-unquote. When one is in recovery and when one has made a lifetime of using, an, uh, using avoidance or replacement items, rather than filling these real needs, the presence of hunger, anger, loneliness or tiredness can be very fast track to relapse or even death. The tricky part is that, they true, that the true replacement is not sugar, alcohol, drugs or eating, vegans or lashing out, acting out, jumping into sex or relationships or existing in a co-dependent driven relationship or working harder, long hours in life trying to squeeze more out of less. The true antidote is to develop skills. This can be learned by anyone. The skill of noticing when hold is beginning, trigger and push one toward negative reactions. The skill of pause. Perhaps this, is, perhaps this one comes before and after the, the noticing. The skill of turning to trusted friends and mentors, counselors to help remind us uh, we are learning the more fulfilling ways of changing our minds and our reactions into choices and responses. The skill of learning one's own true choice and how uh, and, and where they can be used to balance the other parts of life. The skill of making lists of gratitude, the skill of learning how to love oneself and how to care and nurture one's own heart, body, mind and soul. Lastly, the skill of noticing that something else indescribable is there helping us and the willingness to develop spiritual practices or daily devotional practices. Simple practices like willingness, meditation, reading inspiring words of others, practicing acts of kindness to self and others, there is so much. But when one is in the addictive 
yes, addictive mind, these skills and ability to learn a new way of living are limited. It is a slow process of practice, practice, practice. It is so worth it that one uh, that on a day of my eighth year of recovery is my two cents, as they say. When everyone is balanced and their needs are met, there is no problem. It is very simple. Unfortunately, our world is not that way, so we must find ways to circumvent and accept our circumstances. This is not being taught, much less practiced, very well in our culture. It seems to be hold is a description of when it is easy to make poor decisions. Honestly, none of these have been triggered for me wanting to pick up a drink. Even when I first got sober my twenties, uh, sober my twenties for eight years, I wanted my soberty so badly that nothing really got in the way. I just worked my program and things got easier. I started drinking again around 30 years old, around 30 years old because I stopped hanging around sober people, going to meetings, and though I could take another cut, uh, another go at drinking. Eventually, I realized I was wrong and got back on my horse and did not look back. I personally did need, didn't need an excuse to pick up a drink. I was drunk because I liked to drink. I could drink because the wine, the wind was blowing, it was raining, or I was in a mood. Any of the above acronyms can make anybody feel unbalanced or feel off kilter, including sober and non-addict people. I'm just grateful to be sober and to feel any feelings that come up and just face them honestly and move into the next moment. Another friend noted that the same dynamic comes into play with her adult son who is on the autism spectrum. Uh, as I was preparing to write this, I could imagine the Supreme singing, stop in the name of love, think, think it oh oh and uh, then find a way to hold a downward spiral. Well, I honestly have to say I don't really know what I should get out of this, but we're going to jump right into the next thing because, you know, why should I? Why should I complain? There is, there is no point in complaining whatsoever. So how to start new habits that actually stick. And this is an article by James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. And whenever it comes to habits, he is the one that I suggest people to talk about and to, to read about because he is an amazing source, free source, when it is all about habits. And so I'm going to read this article. It is a fairly long one, but I'm just going to go through it. It's going to take me some time, but it is fine. So how to start new habits that actually stick. This article is an excerpt from Atomic Habits, my New York Times bestselling book. Your life today is essentially the sum of your habits. How in shape or out of shape you are a result of your habits. How happy or unhappy you are, a result of your habits. How successful or unsuccessful you are, a result of your habits. What you repeatedly do, i.e. what you spend time thinking about and doing each day, ultimately forms the person you are, the things you believe and the personality that you portray. But what if you want to improve? What if you want to form new habits? How would you go about it? Turns out there is a helpful framework that can make it easier to stick to new habits so that you can improve your health, your work and your life in general. So let's talk about the framework now. The science of how habits work. The process of building a habit can be divided into four simple steps. Cue, craving, response, and reward. Breaking it down into these fundamental parts can help us understand what a habit is, how it works, and how to improve it. We have the cue, first of all, then we have cravings, then we have the response, and then reward. And everything takes time. This four-step pattern is the backbone of every habit, and your brain runs through these steps in the same other order each time. First, there is the cue. The cue triggers your brain to initiate a behavior. It is a bit of information that predicts a reward. Our prehistoric ancestors were paying attention to cues that signaled the location of primary rewards like food, water, and sex. Today we spend most of our time learning cues that predict secondary rewards like money and fame, power and status, 
praise and approval, love and friendship, or a sense of personal satisfaction. Of course, these pursuits also indirectly improve our odds of survival and reproduction, which is the deeper motive behind everything we do. Your mind is continuously analyzing your internal and external environment for hints of where reward are located, or rewards are located. Because the cue is the first indication that we are close to reward, it is naturally leads to cravings. It naturally leads to cravings. Cravings are the second step of the habit loop and they are the motivational force behind every habit. Without some level of motivation or desire, without craving uh, a change, we have no reason to act. What you crave is not the habit itself, but the change its state it delivers. You do not have you do not crave smoking cigarette, you crave the feeling of relief it provides. You're not motivated um, by brushing your teeth, by, but rather by the feeling of a clean mouth. You do not want to turn on the television, you want to be entertained. Every craving is linked to a desired change or internal state. This is an important point that we will discuss in detail later. Cravings differ from person to person. In theory, any piece of information could trigger a craving. But in practice, people are not motivated by the same cues. For a gambler, the sound of slot machines can be a potential trigger that sparks an intense wave of desire. For someone uh, who rarely gambles, the chiggles and chims of the casino are just background noise. Cues are meaningless until they are interpreted. The thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the observer are what transform a cue into a craving. And I think this is the first step where we notice that we can actually do something about it because when he says the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the observer is what transforms a cue into a craving, this just means, okay, we can actually kind of do something about it. Just a side note here. The third step in the response, the response is the response. The response is the actual habit you perform, which can take the form of a thought or an action. Whether response occurs depends on how motivated you are and how much friction is associated with the behavior. If a particular action requires more physical or mental effort, then you are willing to expand, then you won't do it. Your response also depends on your ability. It sounds simple, but a habit can occur only if you are capable of doing it. If you want to dunk a basketball, but can't jump high enough to reach the hoop, well, you're out of luck. Finally, the response re delivers a reward. Rewards are the end goal of every habit. The cue is about noticing the reward. The craving is about wanting the reward and the response is about obtaining the reward. We chase rewards because they serve two purposes. First of all, they satisfy us and second of all, they teach us. The first purpose of reward is to satisfy our craving. Yes, rewards provide benefits on their own. Food and water deliver the energy you need to survive. Getting a promotion brings more money and respect. Getting in shape improves your health and your dating prospects. But the more immediate benefit is that rewards satisfy your cravings to eat or to gain status or to win approval. At least for a moment, rewards deliver contentment and relief from cravings. Second, rewards teach us with actions and uh, with actions are worth remembering in the future. Um, your brain is a reward detector. As you go about your life, your sensory nervous system is continuously monitoring which actions satisfy your desire and deliver pleasure. Feelings of pleasure and disappointment are part of the feedback mechanism that helps you or your brain distinguish useful actions from useless ones. Rewards close the feedback loop and complete the habit cycle. If a behavior is insufficient in any of the four stages, it will not become a habit. Eliminate the cue and your habit will never start. Reduce the cravings and you won't experience enough motivation to act, make the behavior difficult and you won't be able to do it. And if the reward fails to satisfy your desire, then you'll have no reason to do it again in the future. Without the first three steps, a behavior will not occur. Without all four, a behavior will not be repeated. The habit loop. First cue, then craving, then response, and then we have the reward. 
Uh, the four stages of habit are best described as a feedback loop. They form an endless cycle that, uh, that is running every moment you are alive. This quote-unquote habit loop is continually scanning the environment, predicting what will happen next, trying out uh, different responses and learning from the results. Charles Dyke and Nia Eyal uh, deserve special recognition for their influence on this image. This representation of the habit loop is a combination of language that was popularized by Dyke's book, The Power of Habit, and a design that was popularized by Eyal's book, Hooked, which both are apparently, at least hooked, I know, uh, pretty interesting. In summary, the cue triggers a craving which motivates a response which provides a reward which satisfies the craving and ultimately becomes associated with the cue. Together, these four steps form a neurological feedback loop, cue, craving, response, reward, cue, craving, response, reward, that ultimately allows you to create automatic habits. You can split these four steps into two phases, the problem phase and the solution phase. The problem phase includes the cue and the craving and it is when you realize that something needs to change. The solution phase includes the response and the reward and it is when you take action and achieve the change you desire. All behavior is driven by the desire to solve a problem. Sometimes the problem is that you notice something good and you want to obtain it. Sometimes the problem is that you are ex experiencing pain and you want to relieve it. Either way, the purpose of every habit is to solve the problem you face. So let's discover a few examples of what this looks like in real life. Problem phase and the solution phase and then we have in queue, craving, response and habit, but I'm gonna read it as such as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty amazing article, as I said. Pretty amazing. Your phone buzzes uh, with a new text message, which is the cue. The craving is you want to learn the contents of the message, which is the craving. The response is you grab your phone and read the text. Fourth is the reward. You, you satisfy your craving to read the message. Grabbing your phone becomes associated with your phone buzzing. Hmm, fucked up. <laughs> You're answering emails. You begin to feel stressed and overwhelmed by work. You want to feel in control. You bite your nails. You satisfy a craving to reduce stress. Biting your nails becomes associated with answering emails. Hmm. You wake up. You want to feel alert. You drink a cup of coffee. You satisfy a craving to feel alert. Drinking coffee becomes associated with waking up. And this is the same text, the same exact thing. I can't talk today. I'm actually very sorry about that. Um, with anger, you get angry. Um, you want to feel relieved, you don't want to feel angry, you want to just um, get rid of it, you punch uh, whatnot or you throw something around and then you feel satisfied um, and then yeah, uh, there's association with violence and feeling angry, which doesn't have to be the case. Uh, you smell a donut, you smell a donut shop as you walk down the street near your office, you begin to crave a donut, you buy a donut and eat it, you satisfy your craving to eat a donut by buying a donut becomes associated with the walking down the street near your office. Bad habit. You hit a what? You hit a stumbling block on a project at work. You feel stuck and want to relieve your frustration. You pull out your phone and check social media. You satisfy your craving to feel relieved. Checking social media becomes associated with feeling stalled at work. This four-step process is not something that happens occasionally, but rather it is an endless feedback loop that is running and active during every moment you are alive, even now. The brain is continuously scanning the environment, predicting what will happen next, trying out different responses and learning from the results. The entire process is completed in a split second and we use it again and again without realizing everything has, uh, with everything that has been packed into the previous moment. Uh, imagine walking into a dark room and flipping on the light switch. You have performed this simple habit so many times that it occurs without thinking. You proceed uh, through through all four stages in a fraction of a second, the urge to act strikes you with 
without thinking. So the cue is you walk into a dark room, uh, you want to be able to see, you flip the light switch, you satisfy your craving to see, turning on the light switch becomes associated with being in a dark room, which I, by the way, think is an amazingly important uh, part of learning something. You know, the whole habit thing, the whole rec recognizing thing and uh, seeing what cue can be, um, can be, 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 or what reward you can just achieve for all the cues that you see. By the time we become adults, we rarely notice the habits that are running our lives. Most of us are, most of us never give a second thought to the fact that we tie the same shoe first each morning or unplug the toaster after each use or always change it, uh, change into comfortable clothes after getting home from work. After decades of mental programming, we automatically slip into these patterns of thinking and acting and it is the exact same motherfucking way with fucking anger. Where to go from here? We can transform these four steps into a particular framework that we can use to design good habits and eliminate bad ones. I refer to this framework as the four laws of behavior change and it, is, and it provides a simple set of rules for creating good habits and breaking bad ones. You can think of each law as a level that influences human behavior. When the levels are in the right position, creating good habits is effortless. When they are in the wrong position, it is nearly impossible. So how to create a good habit? First of all, the cue which is the first law, make it obvious. What is the cue? Second of all, the law. Uh, second of all, or second law, craving. Make it attractive. Third of all, the response. Make it easy. And fourth of all, make it satisfying. We can invert these laws to learn how to break a bad habit. So how to break a bad habit. Uh, inversion of the first law. Make it invisible. Inversion of the second law. Make it unattractive. Inversion of the third law make it difficult and inversion of the fourth law make it unsatisfying and those uh, eight things are incredibly important because there's a lot in there so whenever you want to change your behavior you can simply ask yourself how can i make it obvious how can i make it attractive and how can i make it easy for me and how can i make it satisfying it would be irresponsible for me to claim that these four laws are an ex uh, exhaustive framework for changing any human behavior but i think they are close if you have ever wondered why do I do what I say and I'm going to do what? Why don't I do what I say I'm going to do? Why don't I lose the weight or stop smoking or save for retirement and start that side business? Why do I say something is important but never seem to make time for it? The answer to those questions can be found somewhere in these four laws. The key to creating good habits and breaking bad ones is to understand these fundamental laws and how to alter them to your specifications. Every goal is doomed to fail if it goes against the grain of human nature. This article is an excerpt for chapter 3 of my New York Times bestselling book, Atomic Habits. I think it is actually a very good source. I, I should actually read it. Fuck. I should really actually read it. Um, something that I do want to point out is that uh, inversion of the law, of the third law, of the response, is make it difficult. Which means if you want to break a habit, make it as difficult as you can to fulfill it. You don't eat something bad if you don't have it at home. It is difficult. You're making it more difficult or you're going to just put this certain cookie into a closet that is just way above the ground and you can't reach it that easily. It is difficult. For example, inversion of the queue, make it invisible. Hmm. I, I'm not sure about what he means with that. Make it unattractive. I know, thinking about it, you know, why you should even be doing this, you know, make it unsatisfying. You know, probably making it unsatisfying by noticing that it is actually pretty unattractive. Unattractive, yeah. And by maybe thinking about the consequences, and by maybe thinking about 
uh, what you're doing to yourself. But yeah, um, this is going to be the end of the episode. I really hope that I've been able to just share some things. I'm very sorry that I haven't been talking about uh, too many things today. But as I said, I'm a little bit like foggy and, and really like just, um, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It is a little bit of a strange thing. But anyway, I wish you the best health of happiness and all success. And, all, and I also hope that you're going to write yourself and you're going to be remembered, which basically means your legacy and basically means just being a nice person. And then also being remembered as a nice person, which is a pretty fucking cool thing. Three other questions that I'm having for you are, why are you here? What are you trying to change and what is bothering you? The most these three quest Jones are hopefully going to show you your purpose and maybe even a business idea, which is a cool thing. Uh, one other thing that I'm having for you is, what could you particularly say that is going to change somebody's life? You know, because I totally believe that we all can say something and they all can um, give a compliment or whatnot that is really going to change somebody's life. But yeah, um, I'm going to hopefully see you the next time. Bye-bye and thank you very much.